At Eastern Bank, we believe that growing business should also grow the community. That's why we work to give all business owners what they need to take their dreams to the next level. Our dedication to small businesses and communities has inspired us to create the Equity Alliance for Business program and become the number one SBA lender in Massachusetts for 15 years running. We're proud to be here for all businesses, big and small. See the good we can do for you by visiting easternbank.com slash business. Member FDIC. Welcome to Say More from Boston Globe Opinion. I'm Shirley Leung. For decades, the car has been the ultimate symbol of American freedom and independence. Radio up, windows down, wind in our hair. The tremendous space all around you. The country rolling out to the horizon and you rolling with it. And you sort of sense the real meaning behind the word freedom. But today, when we talk about cars and freedom, we mean something quite different. We're talking about the freedom to not drive, the prospect that our cars will do all the work for us. Self-driving taxis are already on the road in San Francisco. Oh, this is so wild. Here we are inside the self-driving car. Riding in a minivan with nobody in the front seat, with pedestrians and cyclists and other vehicles out on public Will this future actually come to pass? Do we even want this future? Could it be a safer future than continuing to put humans behind the wheel? My guest today has thought more about these questions than just about anyone. Laura Major is Chief Technology Officer of Motional, a self-driving car company based here in Boston. Motional is partly owned by Hyundai, and they have a partnership with Lyft. Laura is also co-author of the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting Robots, The Future of Human-Robot Collaboration. I started by asking Laura not about cars, but about airplanes. Here's our conversation. So you spent the first decade of your career in the aerospace industry, and I was struck by how much of your book was about dissecting plane crashes. I had a pit in my stomach uh, reading about them. So tell me about that research. So in the aerospace industry, there's been work for decades to figure out how do you bring automation into the cockpit and into the overall operations in a way that's going to improve safety. So a lot of the examples that we use and the stories we tell in in our book are about moments where that collaboration didn't work and led, unfortunately, to, you know, fatal consequences. But how, you know, that learning then spawned new innovations or new, um, in some cases, even procedures about when do you give the authority to the, the automation? When do you give the authority to the person? So we went through those examples to really give tangible experiences of where how automation was introduced and, and, and then what we learned through the introduction of that automation that still has high relevance to AI and autonomous vehicles and how they're used today. So when did you realize, wait, all this work I'm doing on autopilots, um, this could be applied to cars and in, in self-driving cars in particular? When, 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 did, when did that light bulb go off? Yeah, so it was in the early days of when self-driving cars and the early projects, you know, the Google car project, for example, when these started happening, you know, it kind of happened all of a sudden. Um, These cars, you know, showed up on the road and we started seeing media stories about 
self-driving cars doing strange things. And so I started getting interested, reading more, studying it, and ultimately the book. You know, Julie Shaw and I, uh, we we spent a lot of time, um, you know, thinking about and researching how the lessons learned and the technologies developed in other domains, in industrial domains like aerospace or manufacturing robots, um, you know, how the lessons we've learned there could cross over to help us to bring robotics and AI solutions more safely and quickly into the commercial domain. And also what things, you know, what technical challenges um, are present in the commercial domain that maybe haven't been tackled yet because they weren't as relevant in the industrial world. So for example, for self-driving cars, these are robots, robot cars that, you know, everyday people are interacting with. In an aerospace domain, you have a trained pilot who who's trained not just on the plane itself and how to fly the plane, but they get deep training on the automation that's in the cockpit. So they really deeply understand, you know, what the automation's doing. You don't have that luxury, right, with a self-driving car. You have to interact with the public, the passengers in the car, pedestrians and other drivers around the car. Um, and so there are new design challenges that we have to tackle. So many people love their cars. Uh, I'm one of them. So what's the best case to be made for having the car drive itself? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it comes down to two things. One is safety. You know, if you know that, you know, the, the cars around you and that your, your commute or your drive with your family is going to be safer in a very statistically significant way, right, that the, the probability of, of a fatal accident happening or is going to be greatly reduced, then I think we all would choose that path. Um, the other dimension for me is time back. It can be fun sometimes to ride in our cars, but it's also a chore on most days, you know, getting to work. Driving uh, for me, driving my kids around to their activities, right? Um, the the act of driving itself is uh, is a chore, and so you know, being able to have that time back to to sit near my my kids and talk with them rather than worry about how I'm going to navigate through traffic to get around a construction zone to get them to gymnastics class on time, right? Um, but to be able to ask about their day or you know, going to work, being able to take a call and and look at an email, you know, and and so I think again, that's you know hugely valuable. I mean, I, I was thinking more about this about how it could be safer, but what about traffic? If the self-driving cars are smarter, can be safer, I mean, can they also reduce traffic? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think a future a future state where we have a lot more driverless vehicles in cities has the power of really transforming cities. So one, we won't need as much parking. Imagine if, if we didn't have to design cities for every person to bring their car with them and put it somewhere for the day, right? We now are sharing these driverless vehicles. So, you know, the cities can be designed differently. Traffic, you're, you're absolutely right. You can, um, you need fewer cars. If everyone's driving driverless, you need fewer cars on the roads to serve all of that demand. Um, and so it will be less traffic. And also there's a potential to, you know, someday be able to coordinate among these vehicles so that we can make, you know, things like merging onto, you know, an interstate or handling a roundabout um, more coordinated across vehicles. Again, if we look at kind of air traffic, you know, there are systems like this in place today, and uh, we have that potential in our future with driverless vehicles. So can you describe for me the first time you actually rode in a driverless vehicle? 
So my first driverless ride, yeah, was on a, a track on close course setting here in Boston. We have close course test tracks that we use and we have other vehicles that, you know, that interact with the AVs that pull over and try to create challenging scenarios. Um, we have robotic pedestrians that we can have jump out in front of the car robotic bicyclists that can weave in and out of traffic the way you might see in Boston. And so, yeah, so in that environment was my first experience uh, in, a, in one of our driverless cars. And yes, yeah, seated in the back seat, it was incredible. Were you nervous? <laughs> I, I was, yeah, it was, you know, it's, it it's, was a big moment. And I think, um, it was, yeah, a little nerve wracking because again, I, I was confident in our car. I ride in our cars a lot. I look at our data every, every week, but it, it was, it was still just very different. And again, I knew it would handle the situation safely, but you also wanted to, to handle those situations in a way that's comfortable to the passenger. So respond to those safety, you know, critical situations, but not over respond or, or respond, you know, to, to things that aren't safety critical uh, in a way that's uncomfortable. So, you know, it was really kind of um, nerve wracking from that standpoint, just that I hoped it would be a good experience. And it was. So your company, Motional, is already powering robo-taxis on the Vegas Strip. I think you also have self-driving food deliveries in Santa Monica, California. What are you learning out there? Yeah, um, operating these pilots has been you know, a huge learning opportunity for us at Motional. We've chosen to put public passengers in our cars and, and deliver real meals to customers um, as early as possible in, in a safe way, but so that we can get that feedback. First, um, you know, 90% um, of our riders have um, given a five out of five star rating. And um, they often, you know, give feedback and leave comments as well after their ride. And surprisingly, you know, most of their comments don't really relate to the technology at all. Um, it has to do with normal taxi concerns, like, you know, finding the vehicle initially to start the ride or not having enough room for luggage or the back seat not being able to fit all the, the passengers in that they want. So it's rare that we get feedback on the technology itself. So I think that's a, you know, a good indication that the technology kind of drifts to the back burner and um, the rides are are as people expect, you know, kind of boring, if you will, um, as it would be with a human driver. And so, you know, there seems to be, you know, pretty high acceptance of the technology. Uh, and most riders, you know, say that they would ride again. I should note that self-driving technology is a form of AI. And can you can you explain that for people who may not know the connection? Sure. Yeah. So self-driving cars, you know, are powered by the latest advances in AI technology. We have many sensors on our car, you know, cameras, LIDARs, radars. Um, we take, we have to take that sensor data, which comes in at high volume, and we have to understand the environment around us. So there's image detection, there's classification, many, you know, machine learning type tasks. And then not only that, but once we kind of can see what's in our environment, understand, you know, other people, other cars around us, we then have to predict um, the behavior of what they might do next. If you think of, you know, as a driver yourself, it's not just about, hey, there's a car next to me. It's like, hey, there's a car next to me and it's starting to get close to my lane and it's and it's accelerating a little bit. So maybe I need to slow down to accommodate. It might come over in my lane. So we need to do the same thing on our cars. We need to predict what others, other agents around us might do. And then we ultimately have to make decisions. Um, so we have to decide when to change lanes or we have to decide 
you know, when to slow down a little bit to make room for somebody else or uh, when to swerve because somebody comes into our lane without any indication that they might do so. Um, and so all of that is also requires AI to be able to do that across the diversity of scenarios you see as a driver every day. So you like to tout Motional's safety record, right? I think it's like no accidents, right? In, that's, in, uh... that's right. No at-fault accidents and over um, a million miles. And uh, but the rest of the industry, uh, it, it's far from perfect. I mean, the the first batch of data from the federal government, I think over a ten month period, reported nearly four hundred crashes, some of them fatal. So, what do you say to people who wonder whether this technology is is truly safe? Yeah, so I think there's a real opportunity with driverless vehicles to make them safer than human drivers and to reduce the number of fatalities on our roads. Um, we've seen that in other domains. We've seen that in the aerospace world. Um, you know, a tremendous safety record um, because of the introduction and expansion of automation into the cockpit. And we have that same opportunity on our roads today with driverless vehicles. Um, but yeah, Motional, we, we choose to take a very conservative approach. We think very deeply about our overall um, architecture and in the safety concept of how, you know, uh, what redundancy and capabilities we need within our AV stack to make a safe system to begin with. Um, we also test in a continuous way as we're doing our development. We try to learn as early as possible ways that we can improve the behavior of our vehicle to be both safe and comfortable and, and you know, also avoid nuisance events, like you said, you know, being stuck in an intersection and blocking traffic. Um, so we learn as early as possible and we iterate through our, our continuous development approach and we do it incrementally. So when I heard that you test here in Boston, I thought, that sounds crazy to me. Anyone knows Boston. I mean, uh, our streets don't make sense. They're full of mass holes. Then there's the snow, right? So, but you see a city like Boston as an ideal testing ground. P please explain. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You're, you're right. I think, you know, Boston is a very challenging city. But that actually helps us. We learn the most in Boston because every time we test with every mile on the road, we, we discover new things. A double parked car, um, a snow drift that's, you know, coming into the lane. And so that gives us an opportunity, again, not just, you know, if we only tested in cities that have be better weather and, and maybe better designed streets, um, we we could go down a path where we end up with a solution that is over-indexed for that kind of simpler environment. Um, but by testing in multiple cities at once, including cities as challenging as Boston, that gives us you know, the feedback and the results to make sure that the solutions we're developing will also be developed in a way that's on a path to serving the more challenging environments like, uh, like Boston in the future. So, okay, so what's the weirdest thing that uh, your self-driving cars have had to navigate in Boston or anywhere? <laughs> We see weird things all the time. Some of the the hardest challenges are maybe, you know, a person laying down um, on a curb, um, you know, being able to be sure we can detect that very reliably and um, uh, and factor that in maybe because in case they hop up and jump in front of, you know, out into the road. Um, you know, we see some strange partying behavior in, in Las Vegas like that. So we see things like that all the time that, you know, people take risks as pedestrians and bicyclists in a way that we, we need to make sure that our software not only can drive in a way that is, you know, smooth and comfortable and safe in normal situations, but can also react in those situations where somebody does something that, again, a human driver would have a hard time recognizing and predicting that type of behavior. 
I mean, it seems like right now a lot of the the big pilots are out west, kind of in newer cities, in warmer climates. Does that mean that uh, self-driving cars coming to Boston or kind of the older cities in the Northeast will be, you know, maybe not five years, but maybe will be 10 years, will be further down the road? Yeah, it's, you know, it's hard to predict. But yeah, I think you're exactly right that um, those will not be the first cities where we see driverless vehicles um, expanding into. So we are testing in Boston and we're getting all that learning and building for that type of environment. But in order to achieve the the safety record, the metrics that we need to feel comfortable operating without a a safety operator in the vehicle, it's it's another threshold. Um, And so in the cities that have better climates and and better structured streets and maybe clearer sidewalks. Those are the ones that are going to, we're going to prove out our capability in those environments first. My conversation with Laura Major continues after this short break. At Eastern Bank, we believe in good business. That's why we provide clients with a suite of products and services made to take their businesses to the next level. From express business loans to seamless cash management solutions, we make it easy to grow when the time is right. As a trusted full-service bank and the number one SBA lender in Massachusetts for 15 years running, we understand what you need to keep your business thriving. See the good we can do for you by visiting easternbank.com business. Member FDIC. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. So I want to move on and talk about AI and robots more broadly. In your book, you paint a picture of what a world with robots looks like, from self-driving cars on the road to delivery drones on the sidewalks, right? So how soon are, are we going to see that world? We're seeing it in pieces today, right? We do have um, in some cities and with some tasks, there are, you know, robots today. So in the manufacturing setting, for instance, um, they started small. It started with robots kind of isolated behind fences. Now robots are working beside people and moving things around and handling tasks that people struggle with. We see security robots. Um, that's happening in a lot more places now than in a couple of years ago. Um, and, and now driverless vehicles. So, you know, we are seeing it happen, I think, in in sort of silos and certain tasks and certain domains. Um, And so this future world where we have many more robots helping us in in our our daily life, I think is still, you know, a decade out. I mean, I noticed since the pandemic, there's a, a really bad labor shortage. And now when you go to restaurants, you'll see a robot as your hostess, right? Or a robot right. taking, t- giving you menus and taking you to your table. And, and, and they started to pop up in grocery stores too, right? Roaming the aisles and helping you. So you, you're right. You, you, it, might be, it might not be the Jetsons quite yet, but, um, but in certain pockets, you, you do start to see robots. That leads me to my next question um, about the balance between human intelligence and artificial intelligence. It seems to me getting that balance right um, is one of the central challenges of our time. Um, 
so how do we do that? I mean, what, what does that balance look like to you? Yes, I'm a huge believer in that. In the end, you know, no system we build will will be completely perfect. I don't I don't imagine a future where we completely decouple autonomous systems from the people that are using them. I think, you know, you still at moments you need human judgment. We at Emotional we have what's called remote vehicle assistance. When we have um, our driverless cars on the road, there will always be, you know, a command center uh, with a team of trained experts watching what the systems are doing and being able to step in if, if the vehicle, let's say, gets stuck in an intersection because there's a lot of traffic and it can't get through or, um, you know, how to handle a new construction zone that has completely changed the lanes on us. Um, so we will always need people involved to, to help in those moments. What do you say to people who are deeply worried about seeing their jobs and livelihoods, you know, taken away by robots and AI? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's not that the jobs are taken away. I think it's that the jobs change. Um, And so, again, these systems will still need human touch, right? Um, I mentioned the RVA, but there's also, you know, these vehicles need to be cleaned. They need to be serviced. There's maintenance. They, they're, they're still being tested as we expand our software capabilities. So there are still a lot of roles for people to play with our autonomous vehicles and, and I think with all robots. And so, again, I don't think it's about necessarily taking jobs away, but about changing the jobs. And I think, you know, you mentioned earlier with the um, with the pandemic, we've seen more, you know, robots, let's say, as hostesses in restaurants or delivering food. You know, I think the, with the labor shortage, you know, a lot of a lot of people, um, you know, during the pandemic rethought their lives and how they want to spend their time and and what, you know, what jobs they want to do. And a lot of people are looking for meaning and purpose, you know, in their jobs. And so, you know, we are seeing some jobs that are maybe more mundane or maybe more dangerous. Um, those are jobs where there's, you know, more greater labor shortage right now. And I think those are opportunities where we can bring robotics and autonomous systems to help with those types of tasks to let people do what we're good at, which is creativity, judgment, problem solving, things that extend beyond the capabilities of AI and robotics and will always be beyond those capabilities. There aren't a lot of women who are in a chief technology role like the one you're in. I think you're the only female CTO of a self-driving car company. So what is what is that like? Yeah, it's two-sided. It, it is hard, hard to get the, the respect. You usually have to prove yourself more as a woman in, in this field. Um, and also, you know, my, my approaches, I think my style is a lot different than what is a more common male culture. I'm, I'm more collaborative and open to hear different perspectives, which can sometimes be confused as somebody who maybe doesn't have expertise and knowledge and direction and vision. And so how to blend those things together, because that to me is an important leadership quality is being able to pull together incredible experts and team members and get us to all work together and complement each other and learn from each other. But that doesn't mean that I don't have very strong intuition and vision myself. I know you got to where you are on your own terms. I mean, before COVID, you often talk about how you took a step back from your career to spend more time with your girls. And I've heard you talk about how this was a really tough decision 
to go to a three-day work week, to go down a three-day work week, which may be somewhat normal now, but not before COVID, right? That's and right. Um, and ultimately, you you think it was one of the best decisions you ever made. And so why didn't stepping back set you back in your career? Yeah, I think that surprised me more, more than anyone. Um, but yeah, I had I was kind of on a path. I was climbing up a ladder. I was progressing very fast. And um, yeah, when I had this moment where I was going to have my first child, I wanted I wanted to find greater balance, not forever, but for some period of time. Right? I wanted to spend more time at home than just the weekends, so that I could uh, be with her. Um, and so that caused me to think about my career in a different way. Then I took the time to talk to a lot of people about other roles and other ways I could have impact that might not be just about how much time I was giving. When I was leading a team, they needed me every day. You know, I worked a lot. Um, And so I I talked to a lot of people about um, roles where, you know, I might help shape future ideas or talk to customers, do things that, again, weren't up the ladder necessarily, um, but caused me to develop skills and and contribute in a way that had a much bigger impact than I anticipated. So it wasn't just about growing my team, how many people were reporting to me or, you know, some metric like that. It was, it was more now about kind of these new ideas and understanding problem space with a customer and helping to find the right experts to go pursue these new ideas I was creating. And new doors started opening up that wouldn't have opened up otherwise, but also my mind opened up. It's not just about an upward progression on a ladder. It's about expanding yourself, growing your skill set, looking for opportunities that might, again, might not be a natural traditional step, but might actually be better aligned with your passions or with something that's going to bring you meaning and fulfillment. Well, Laura, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Shirley. It was great, great to talk to you. Thanks for all the great questions. Say More is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Daniel Ackerman with help from Scott Hellman, Anna Kusmer, Jesse Remedios, Alexis Sargent, and Abby Kanina. Our editor is Jim Dow. Our engineer is Ariana Martinez. Maggie Taylor is our marketing coordinator. Our music is from APM Music. Follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Find us online at globe.com slash opinion. I'm Shirley Leung. Thanks for listening. In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlick Case. Available now.